This is Sam. This is Paul. And this is Southpaw. This is the UFC 230 Cormier versus Lewis post-structuralist show. So, right off the bat, why do we call these post-shows post-structuralist? Kind of going with the theme of Southpaw, if you listen to how we break down anything from politics to MMA, it's basically meta-meta studies. And so that's what post-structuralism is. Structure is the obvious shit we all see, so people punching each other. Post-structuralist is looking at the thing behind the thing. So instead of just looking at two people punching each other, we break it down even further where it's one person punches, the other person counters, and the other person counters the counter. And so we're kind of looking at the deep meta game, the multi-layered game of MMA and all the different things that happen to it. And not just in technique, but also the hype surrounding a fight, all the things that leads up to a fight, and also societal and fan reactions. But part of the reason why we even started this podcast is because a lot of the MMA shows are more about the gossip and they don't really break down the fights to the nitty gritty the way we like to break down fights. So we're making a show for all the fans who are more technical. And another reason for making this show is because a lot of people can't afford to watch every UFC. So it's kind of a chance for people who didn't watch it to not only get the results, but to also get the play-by-play with real commentary experience. So you kind of feel like, oh, okay, I see all the details that happen in the fight. So first off, the main event was Daniel Cormier versus Derek Lewis, with Daniel Cormier defending his title, defeating Derek Lewis with a rear naked choke early in round two. So Paul, what were your thoughts of the main event? There weren't any real surprises during the main event because it was essentially what you thought both fighters would do. Cormier would try to take advantage of his years and years of wrestling. And Derek Lewis knew that he had a puncher's and occasionally a kicker's chance of turning the tide. And sooner than later, Cormier would find a way to finish, especially against a short notice opponent. In the fight, Daniel Cormier landed 42 strikes whereas Derek Lewis landed five. Daniel Cormier attempted four takedowns and got four takedowns, so he was 100% on takedown completion. There was only one submission attempt, and that was by Daniel Cormier, and it was also a 100% success ratio. So it was pretty lopsided. Yeah. Out of those five strikes Derek Lewis threw, Daniel Cormier said only one really hurt him, and it was more like a knuckle in the eye. But other than that, he didn't really feel any of the other strikes. You know, it's a little concerning because one of the strikes that I think landed for Derek Lewis was that head kick that seemed to catch Cormier and he just backed straight away instead of angling out or trying to duck under. And it just so happened to be the same type of kick that John Jones caught him with back in DC's only other loss, which was eventually overturned. But it's one of those things where old habits die hard. And it's easy to note that in a win, especially as emphatic as this one, people will say, 
oh, look like DC is great and there's no real thing to fix, but some of the same flaws were still present. You just kind of, it's overshadowed by his victory. Yeah, I think Daniel Cormier even brought up that bad habit of how he leans only to one side to avoid strikes, which leaves him open to the head kick. He mentioned that, I think, like four years ago or five years ago. And so he's been trying to get rid of it because he's aware of it and he still does it. So it's not something where he's not working to get rid of it, but it shows you how deeply ingrained that habit is. Yeah. Do you think it's a wrestling thing or it's just something that he picked up at AKA and he never got rid of? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's a weird reflex thing where because of his stance, he feels safer doing that side. A majority of the time it works. Or it's something he picked up in boxing training early on. Maybe he didn't start off at AKA right away. Or I don't know. He hasn't been doing MMA for that long, but he's developed that weird habit and he's still yet to get rid of it. He doesn't have that many more fights left in him. I think he famously stated that After March of 2019, he's done. He's not fighting. Even if they offered him a mega fight in April, he's not taking it. What happens to Derek Lewis? Because there was all this hype around it because he has this ability, and he still does have this ability to end the fight at any time. But that ability to end a fight at any time is kind of your back pocket plan Z. And his plan Z tends to be his only plan. That should be your plan if nothing else works. And so he wins fights because nothing else works and he has to go to plan Z where he just goes, I don't even know what you would call it. He just goes full onslaught. He just doesn't care about blocking or defense or technique and just starts throwing punches as hard as he can and sees what happens. To a certain degree, it almost feels like the strategy that Homer Simpson used when he was a boxer. He would absorb the blows and then he waits until you get tired and then he can finish you from there. It's just compounded by the fact that Derek Lewis also happens to have a gigantic weapon that Homer didn't and that he can knock you out with either hand. Yeah, he's like Homer Simpson durability with Mike Tyson punches. That's essentially it. It's still a dangerous combo because unless you've put him away, he's still going to stand there. I think the only guy who's been successful prior to Cormier was Mark Hunt. It's really about have you sparred enough? And Mark Hunt has sparred enough, of course. So he's seen people come out with that. So he knows how not to get knocked out by that. And when you get to the upper echelon of MMA, that type of blitz attack that works on the lower tier doesn't really work that well. And also it exposed something that Derek Lewis has always had, which is, I'm not going to say he's easy to take down because a lot of people have had problems, but he does get taken down a lot. Yeah, he's also in a weight class when guys are just as big as him. He's one of he's definitely one of those guys that cuts to 265, as you could see. But what we've been shown over time and time again is the biggest guys in the heavyweight divisions aren't necessarily the scariest. It's always the guys who hover in that 230, 240 range who are a lot more mobile, can execute their game plans on the fly, and have the ability to more or less dictate the pace as opposed to just being the biggest. Yeah, he has size. He has power. He has a lot of genetic gifts, but he also has some genetic faults. I think he has to do the jumping high kick to reach your head, even though he's so tall, because you look at the way his hips are shaped and his knees are shaped, and it's classic what they call knee valgus, where he has knob knees, where they point inwards. So if you drew a line from his hip down to his feet, it would be a crooked line. And so people who have legs like that, 
their legs tend to be really stiff because they don't bend as easily as knees that are more aligned. And people who have that problem, because I do have a background in biomechanics, they develop other issues like knee pain, foot pain, but also back pain because they're never able to distribute their weight and load. And also because their knees aren't functioning properly, their back has to do a lot of the stabilizing. And so that's been a problem for Derek Lewis, chronic back pain. That was a big problem in his Nganu fight, which is why he couldn't do much. Would you also say that plays a part in his ability or inability to defend takedowns as well? Yeah. So going back to the way he kicks, because his knees are shaped like that, uh, I believe it's called the Q angle, the angle from your hips to your knees. But anyway, because his hips are also pointed inward, he can't just shoot his leg up there to kick you. So he has to get height to kick you to the head. That's why he has to jump and do it. It just means his legs don't have that much dexterity, which prevents him not only from kicking, but also when he stands, he stands really stiff. His legs are almost locked out because he can't just bend into them that well, which makes it really easy to take him down with a single leg because you pick him up and he's already on stilts. It doesn't take much to put him down, which Daniel Cormier showed as soon as he picked up the leg. It was almost like Derek Lewis was going to fall over anyway. Derek Lewis is really good at defending double legs because he is good at sprawling and digging his underhooks, which Mark Hunt was good at also. Anytime somebody grabs a single leg, unless you have a lot of leg dexterity, you're eventually just going to fall over on your own because to balance on one leg, that leg has to be really dynamic, which Derek Lewis doesn't have. So even if you look at his old fights, people would pick up his leg and he would just fall over. Yeah, so even if Derek Lewis had more time to prepare, I don't know if the end result would have been all that much different. Maybe it would have dragged on a couple minutes longer. Maybe it would have gone to round three. But how are you going to take a lifetime of wrestling experience away within that short of a fight or try to cram it into a training camp? And even with that said, because his stance is so upright, it still makes him really easy to take down. He would have to change the stance also for him to be able to fight well. So where does Derek Lewis go from here? I know he wants to take time off, but does the UFC just match him with non-wrestlers moving forward? Or is it something that out of the current crop of top heavyweights, you have Stipe, who has a wrestling background, Curtis Blades? This is where it looks like a fighter got broken after they lost really bad. But actually, I think it's more like they look really good because they fought everybody on the roster that matches up well with them. So only people they have left are the people that matches up really bad with them. So Derek Lewis, I could see him going on a string of losses because everybody left for him to fight are really good wrestlers and he hasn't fought them yet. So people will be like, oh, is he washed up? Did Daniel Cormier break him? And it's like, no, everybody he has left to fight are really tough fights for him now. Well, he still has Overeem. I don't think they fought. He still has plenty of fun matchups, and I think that's the kind of fighter he's going to be. You put him in there to have fun matchups. You try to put him in there with a fun striker if you can, and Derek Lewis is going to Derek Lewis. But if you don't have the style or the ability to beat everybody on the roster, it's really hard to not only become a champion, but to keep your title. So for those of you who don't know, Daniel Cormier is a two-time Olympian. He's also the Strikeforce Heavyweight Grand Prix champion. He's been heavyweight champion in a couple other organizations. He's a double champion in the UFC where he's held 
the UFC light heavyweight title and the heavyweight title. And he's the only double champion to ever defend both titles. So this just becomes another feather in his cap and another time he's the first to do something. I think not only is it a favorable matchup in terms of opponents, but he has a chance to make history in he gets to defend both titles simultaneously. And he becomes, like you said, the first champion to do so. Because let's say he waits until the end of the year next year, post Jones Gustafson 2, they strip one of his belts and he's only defending one of them. But right now, if he takes a fight and he wins, he becomes the only fighter to defend both titles in the same year. He beat Vulcan and then he beats Stipe to win the heavyweight title and then he defends that. And it's still within the same year, so it's hard for his critics to say, well, he's not defending the light heavyweight title. Or it's like he still did it within this year and it's not too far off where the UFC will strip their champions of not being active enough. And just to clarify... He wasn't defending both titles against Derek Lewis. It was only the heavyweight title. So let's move on to the co-main event. Chris Weidman versus Ronaldo Jacare Souza, where Jacare knocked Chris Weidman out in round three. What were your thoughts of the fight, Paul? Chris Weidman did exactly what Chris Weidman does. He looks amazing in the beginning until he loses. And now he's one in four, unfortunately. Maybe not from the beginning, but somewhere along the line, he developed this cardio problem where I would say for the last several years, he looks really strong in the first three minutes and then he just looks gassed. That doesn't mean he can't make three rounds or five rounds. It just looks like he has to do it with grit, but he just doesn't have the same snap. He do- he's not moving. He used to be somebody known for a lot of movement and the way he controlled the ring, how, how he cornered people, how he stalked them, how he cut off the ring. But as he gets gassed, he just stands there and they just have a slugfest. And even though Jacare is older, I think he's 38. Jacare's always been a phenom athlete. So he's always had good gas. Even against Yoel Romero, Jacare was really hurt in the fight, but he came back strong in round three. So he's somebody that can keep going until the very end of the fight. And I think people were waiting for him to age out where Age finally catches up to him, and it has a little bit, but he still had more in the tank than Chris Weidman, who is several years younger than him. So I don't know what's going on with Chris. What do you think is Chris's gas issue? I know in the past he's mentioned he overtrained. I think it's not so much overtraining at this point. I think it just might be a weight cut issue because I've seen Chris Weidman before, not personally, but just from going to UFC fights where I see him walk around. He's a big middleweight. And for him to constantly make that, especially as he gets older, it might hinder his actual performance. He can go strong, but because a good portion of his camp is dedicated to weight cutting, he might not be able to have as much cardio going later. And as you know, as you get older, it gets harder and harder to make the weight. Chris does it. He's never missed weight, but it might affect his training. I'm not saying Chris is one of those guys that have been affected by USADA due to steroid use. But maybe it does affect his weight cutting where he can't rehydrate as much. Because IVs have also been banned as part of the USADA restrictions. So in the past, it was okay for fighters to get an IV, a saline IV to rehydrate themselves. Because it's just water. It's not a performance enhancing drug. But USADA got rid of it, not because they thought 
rehydrating that way was cheating, but because there is a way to use IV hydration to cover up steroid use, it can kind of mess with the results. So just to be safe, they got rid of that. So it kind of ended up being a casualty of the USADA drug testing era where that wasn't wrong. It wasn't against the rules, but because it can mess with the results, they had to get rid of it, which ended up hurting a lot of fighters in their ability to recover from a tough weight cut. And why do they have such tough weight cuts in MMA compared to boxing? Because MMA, their weight classes are much bigger than boxing. So it's not like every five pounds, there's a new weight class. Sometimes it's every 15 pounds or 10 pounds. So they have to make much bigger weight cuts than other combat athletes, like in judo or wrestling also. So you create these ridiculous weight classes that are so far apart, and then you take away hydration, it's going to fuck with fighters. So not only that, but if you take Chris Wyman and compare him to one of his contemporaries, Luke Rockhold, Luke Rockhold has a lot of technical deficiencies that you see in fight after fight after fight. So he'll throw a hook and then he leaves his head wide open. And that's how he's been able to get countered by Bisping, by Romero. Even Branch had success and had him in trouble. But with Chris Weidman, he starts winning every fight in a different fashion. When he fought Luke Rockhold, he immediately took him down, was able to control him on the ground and had success striking. Same thing with Yoel Romero. When Chris fought Yoel, he looked amazing in that first round. He was taking down Yoel. He controlled and dictated the pace. When he fought Musasi, it was the same thing where he was able to vary his attacks and had Musasi in all kinds of trouble. And with Jacare, he also had a beautiful jab and he pieced him up every time he hit him with the one-two. As I mentioned, he was winning until he lost. And it might directly be affected to his cardio because skill-wise, he seems to be all there. But the old saying goes, fatigue makes cowards of us all. He always comes in looking like he's game-planned. He has a strategy specific for the fighter, and it looks good at the beginning. This fight against Jacare was a classic example where he looked good in round one. Round two, it looked like both guys were tiring out. Jacare had a hard time breathing through his nose. And in round three, Jacare just had a little bit more, and Chris Weidman was just standing there, not really moving, not moving his head at all. And they were just both doing rock and sock and robots. And that's the thing. That's what we said at the beginning. That's what a lot of analysts are saying. This event wasn't that surprising, which includes this fight. We've seen Chris lose like this before, where he just looks dog tired. He's not moving. He's not moving his feet. And then they just start punching his face until he goes down. And at this point, he's been KO'd so many times. It's not that hard to knock him out. And credit to Jacare because he took advantage of working Chris's body early on. And it also added to the fact that Chris tires out. It almost seemed like to expedite the inevitable. When Jacare knew that I'm taking a punch to the face in order to give one to Chris, but I know that starting in round two, he's going to tire out. He's going to drop his hands and it's going to give me an opportunity to hit him in the head. And that's exactly what he did. You hit a guy enough times to the body He'll drop his hands, and that's when Jacare came in over the top and clipped him right in the temple. And the end was almost like a mercy killing. When Jacare knew Weidman's out, his head hit the back of the canvas, his eyes were rolling to the back of his head, and he looked to Dan Mergliota, and he said, what more do you want at this point? So he had these 
very pitter-patter punches because he didn't want to hurt Chris anymore. But it was one of those things where, hey, the fight's effectively over. What more do you want from me? Yeah, he was trying to be a class act and not beat up Chris too much. And Dan Mergliato was like, no, you got to beat him up more. It sucks to watch Weidman lose again. And he's one in four. I don't know where he goes from here. He's still dangerous enough to a lot of other middleweights. But I think it might be time for him to move up to light heavyweight. Maybe reinvent himself there. I think even if he does that, he only has a couple more years left. Because one of the things that troubled me about Weidman was he used to be big about everybody else cheating, taking steroids. One time when he fought Vitor Belfort, Vitor had testosterone levels that actually were average. Now, did Vitor use something to get there? I don't know, but they didn't catch him. And this was post-USADA era. Chris's problem was, hey, why does this guy have testosterone levels that are three times higher than mine? And which made me wonder, what the hell is yours then? And for his age, his testosterone was extremely low. And Chris said he could get clear for testosterone replacement therapy if he wanted, but he didn't want to cheat. My question is, what the fuck has he been doing to get his testosterone so low? One of the ways you get it really low, overtraining for years. Another way, weight cuts. Another way, head damage. And so at this point, you have a guy who already four or five years ago had really low testosterone. You add in more headshots and more weight cuts. I don't know if his hormones can ever recover from that. And if your testosterone is that low, that means other hormones are low. That means other systems are low. I don't know if his cardio and his stamina can ever recover with numbers like that. That's true. But at the very least, he won't have to worry about weight cuts as much. And who knows, he might be able to reinvent himself. But at the very least, it'll give him a fresh start. Because at middleweight, where does he go from here? No, it's true. And that was his plan back in the day. He wanted to move up to 205. He talked about that after he beat Anderson Silva. He thought he would be a very dominant middleweight champion. And from there, he would move up and try to be a double champion going against John Jones because he knew he was too big. And he had said that he was very big for middleweight. The weight cut was tough. But because he didn't have the success that he had wanted, he had to throw that 205 idea out the window because he's been on a quest to reclaim his title. And I don't know if he can ever get it. So to prolong his career, yeah, maybe it would be better for him to go up to 205. Yeah, there's several guys who are plagued with that same issue. Luke Rockhold is one. Yoel Romero is another. And I think recently there's been a case to make for fighters who find success moving up because you're not diminished by the weight cut. In the main card, you also had David Branch fighting Jared Cannonier in the middleweight division. With Jared Cannonier knocking David Branch out early in round two. And Jared Cannonier is somebody who's fought in the UFC at heavyweight, light heavyweight, and now middleweight. And he looks great. He moved his whole family from Alaska down to Arizona to train with the MMA lab with John Crouch. I don't know if he's a really skilled fighter, but he could take a lot of damage and he hits really hard. And that's kind of how this fight looked. It was good to see Philip Nova working again. He was in David Branch's corner. So I don't know if he doubled also as a cut man or as medical stuff in case things went wrong. But it made sense given that they're both from New York City and they both happen to train in MMA. I, I thought that was interesting in that Philip Nover was another guy where they had all the right skills, but their mental game wasn't there. 
The thing about MMA, it's not just about punching and kicking and wrestling. It's also about a strong mental game, not just in strategy and tactics and adapting during the fight, but just grit, just resilience, just that ability to take a punch and just keep going. And Philip Nover never really had that. And the same thing with David Branch. He's fought in the UFC before. He left. He went to other organizations. And his confidence was sky high because he knew he was better than all of them. So he was a two-division champion at one point before he got back into the UFC. And he got back because his record was killer. But when he got back, he knew he was in the big pond again. And he had the same confidence issues that he had before. And the same thing you saw in this fight where he was doing great. He's a front runner. When he's doing good, he's doing good. And then when he takes some damage, especially when he gets dropped, he just freezes. But he doesn't even have to get dropped. Sometimes he just gets taken down or the fight doesn't go his way and he just freezes. Same thing happened against Luke Rockhold where he was beating him up. Luke Rockhold gets the takedown and then David Branch just freezes. And Luke Rockhold finishes him. And that's kind of what we saw here, or that was my interpretation of how the fight went, where David Branch was winning. He faced some adversity because Jared Cannonier hits hard and Jared Cannonier used to be a heavyweight. So he actually still has, even though he's short, he's much shorter than David Branch. He still has a long reach. So he got clipped by a shot where I think Branch didn't think he was within punching reach, but he was okay. He got dropped, but he wasn't out. If you look at the slow motion, his eyes weren't rolling into the back of his head. He saw Jared Cannonier coming towards him to start doing ground and pound. And most fighters, when they see that happening, they try to recover guard as quickly as possible, which we saw other fighters do in the prelims. David Branch didn't try to recover guard. He went straight to covering his face and turtling. One of the things that really impressed me about Jared Cannonier was the fact that he takes instructions very well. In the beginning, David Branch shot in like a bat out of hell. And he got Cannonier down a couple times. There was a moment in the fight when Cannonier looks directly at the camera, but it's also because it was at the same angle that his corner was. You could hear John Crouch shouting instructions, put both hands, make sure Branch doesn't do this. He was listening to every single part of it. There's something to be said about fighters who, in the midst of all the chaos, can drown everything else out and listen just to their cornermen and their coaches. He followed their instructions to a T. And there's times when John Crouch and Ben Henderson and Eddie Chaw would say, frame him, make sure, move your hips back. And he was following that to a T. Now, I didn't hear what David Branch's corner was saying, but I knew that when Cannoneer was the type of guy who didn't fold under pressure and he was able to listen and execute his team's game plan, that Branch was in trouble. You could see that the shots that were coming were getting sloppier and sloppier. And Cannoneer doesn't have to be as technical. He just needs to hit you hard with those shots. What I saw was during one of the exchanges towards the end, he trapped David Branch's arms in between his armpit. And the moment he let it go, David Branch just brought it straight back to his body and Cannoneer clipped him with that overhand counter. And that was the end of the fight. So Cannoneer listens very well. He doesn't panic, and he's used to opponents that are much bigger from heavyweight and light heavyweight. Because there are scenes when you could see him and Ben Henderson standing next to each other, and Cannonier doesn't look that much bigger. It was a fight of opposites where you had one guy 
who's a really good front runner who folds mentally, and then Cannoneer, who majority of his fights he was losing and then he came back to win. So he's somebody who stays relaxed, even when he's losing. But not only that, he never gives up. He never feels like, oh, this fight is slipping away from him. He stays confident. Now, if you put all their skill sets side by side, I would say David Branch is the better striker, the better wrestler, definitely better jujitsu guy. But Kenanier mentally and maybe also physically as far as physical attributes of strength were much above David Branch. And that made the difference in this fight. I don't know how much of a mental difference it made to David Branch because he was actually supposed to face Jacare in this fight. But when Luke Rockwell got injured, they moved Jacare up and Cannoneer was brought in as a last-minute replacement. So I don't know if David Branch's confidence was even higher. He thought, well, I was ready to beat Jacare, but now I'm going to beat this last-minute substitute even worse. But when it didn't happen and when he couldn't get him out early enough, maybe he folded. He, he starts out with confidence. He always starts out with confidence, even against Luke Rockhold. It's just that when it doesn't go as easy as he thinks or he faces adversity, his confidence meter starts dropping really quickly. And I could see him getting cut from the UFC again. Because kind of like what we were talking about with DC, there's habits and they get deeply ingrained. And he had the same habit, what, six years ago when he was originally in the UFC and he got cut? He had that same kind of front runner confidence issue where where he's confident when he's doing well and when he's not doing well, then he starts folding. And skill-wise, he got a lot better, but that habit of folding when facing adversity has still stuck with him. And so he'll lose to inferior fighters. You know what might be a fun matchup? Chris Weidman versus David Branch in a loser leaves town. (laughs) Bad gas versus bad confidence. Yeah, it'll be fun. Or in Chris Weidman's case, it might be loser leaves the division. Now, that's a fight where I could see Chris Weidman winning just because Chris Weidman will gas, but he won't give up. And I think he could probably get David Branch to give up. But it will still be fun as long as it lasts. Seven minutes, eight minutes. Yeah, it won't be a long fight. And also, maybe David Branch paces him up at the beginning, too. Or David Branch really fucks him up at the beginning and just puts him out. Calvin Gastelum almost did that against Weidman. But Weidman is gritty and found a way to win. Now... The commentators were so high on Israel Adesanya, and maybe you are too. Me, out of the middleweight division, Israel Adesanya wasn't the guy who impressed me. It was really Carl Robertson who really impressed me. Yeah, Carl Robertson is only three years into his career. He's basically a novice and he's at the UFC already. But he looked great in this fight, especially in his ability to adapt because he hurt his leg, his knee or his foot somewhere in the fight, and he just adapted and found a way to win. And he was just lighting this dude up. So he won by unanimous decision against Jack Marshman from Wales. And it looked like Jack was, to be expected, a really good boxer. But he didn't have the diversity of striking. He didn't have the kicking ability of Carl Robertson. And he didn't have as good of MMA striking as Carl Robertson. And also, Carl just had the speed advantage. Carl looked amazing on the feet, and you could tell that he only really had one or two weapons that he had to worry about from Jack, which were his punches. So you notice that when he would evade the majority of his strikes, it was all coming from his body and head movement, where he's just out of the way enough to not get hit, and he's in the perfect place to counter-strike. Yeah, he has some beautiful counters. I don't know how... Marshman stayed standing because those shots would have put most people out. 
Marshman must have rocks in his head. To a certain degree, I know they're technically different, but Robertson reminded me a little bit of Dominic Reyes in that he was a dominant southpaw. He knew how to hit that counter left every single time, whether he was using it as a deterrent or whether he used it as a counter or just a straight up offensive attack. And Marshman had no real answer to it. The only time Robertson got caught clean was kicks when he threw them naked without any setup. And I don't know if it was by design or if it was just to make sure he kept Marshman on his toes and busy. But when Marshman went to kick him, he just retreated the lead leg back slightly so he would miss and he would be able to hit him with punches. One of the other cool things that Robertson does that I'm not sure if you caught is that he always moves his hands in that pinwheel motion similar to karate fighters, what they do. Fedor was famous for it. Machida does it. But it always seemed to keep Marshman guessing as to what was coming. A lot of fighters, especially if they come from boxing backgrounds, they tend to leave their hands stationary and only move when they're fainting or if they're hitting. But because Robertson is always moving his hands up and down side to side, Robertson was always kept guessing as, well, what's going to come next? Yeah, really beautiful feints. And also this time he came in with wrestling that we hadn't seen him utilize in his previous MMA fights. And I think his loss to Cesar Ferreira really helped him in the long run that he had to work on his wrestling. So right after that fight, he fights this fight and he came in with improved wrestling. And he said he's been focusing on it a lot more, especially training with people like Corey Anderson. Yeah, what better way to seal the round than with an emphatic takedown right in the middle? Because like you mentioned, he hurt his leg and he doesn't want to... I guess, drag it out any more than he has to and risk either a loss or getting injured further. So at least when he's on the ground, he's able to kind of move and shift with his body as opposed to simply with his legs. This is why wrestling is so important for every fighter. A lot of people, they don't want to be full MMA fighters. They just want to be the knockout guy. But here's an example of how wrestling is important. Carl Robertson hurt his leg, so he had to rely on his wrestling to keep winning the rounds. Being able to take the opponent down not only helps you secure the round, but also protects you from further damage. Daniel Cormier is a great example of that because he came into this fight with an injured hand, but because he knew he had other tools that he could work with, he was confident in his abilities to finish the fight. He didn't have to simply knock out Derek Lewis like Derek Lewis's game plan. Yeah, so wrestling is a great equalizer, especially when you get injured during the fight. So if you're a pure striker, and you got injured, and you had zero wrestling, you'd be fucked. A good MMA fighter adapts to the conditions. Not only that, but now it gives his future opponents another thing to worry about. Because if he never shot in, then they would only have to worry about his southpaw stance, his punches, his counters. But now you have to worry about every time I get into an exchange, there's always a danger that he's going to shoot it out of nowhere and take me down right to side control. And then we have the much-hyped Israel Adesanya versus Derek Brunson, which kicked off the pay-per-view event. With Adesanya beating Derek Brunson by knockout late in the first round. Are you on the Israel Adesanya hype train? 100% all aboard. I don't know if his wrestling is UFC level yet. He reminds me of one of those guys who comes over from K1 or Glory or whatever, who has great striking, but C- minus wrestling. Now, Derek Brunson wasn't able to take him down, but I don't know if that says much 
because there's so many better wrestlers than Derek Brunson. And when I say that, I mean better MMA wrestlers. The thing that I really like about Israel is that unlike a lot of guys, especially within that come over from kickboxing to MMA, he took his time in developing and he also has a fight team around him that will constantly push him. So he addresses a lot of the concerns. He'll never be a Chris Weidman or a Yoel Romero or even a Robert Whittaker. But I think he knows enough of how to keep the fight standing and make sure that it stays to his advantage. He's one of those guys that not only fights off his rhythm very well, but he makes sure that you're always missing, that you're always biting on things that he's not there. And he'll keep a good range where you think you're safe, but you're not. And Brunson, he always does that thing where he leads with his face. And this time, instead of getting punched, you got a need. I think a lot of how this fight played out isn't even about how good Israel Adesanya is. It's also about how bad Derek Brunson is, where the majority of his glory was when he was with Greg Jackson. Ever since he left, his record has been off. He looks really bad. He gets knocked out really bad. And I think that happens because he trains himself and he trains with his brothers. And I think he just does that to save money. So a big chunk of his money doesn't have to go to his trainers. So he reminds me of those journeyman fighters in, in boxing where he's not looking to be champion anymore. He's just looking for a paycheck. So, oh, okay. You want me to fight this guy? Okay, I'm going to fight this guy. I'm going to get in shape. And he'll come in shape. And he'll train. But he's not going to train at that championship level anymore. And he just wants to get paid. That's what it looked like against Israel Adesanya, where I don't know what his game plan was. It looked really bad. His setups were really bad. His striking looked really bad. He reminds me a bit of OSP, where I'm not quite sure what he's trying to do, and then he just gets knocked out. And as far as his leading with his chin thing, I've seen a lot of interviews with him and his fights. I think that's a posture issue, because even when he does interviews, his, he has that weird computer neck where his neck is just jutted forward and his chin is out, kind of how you know a lot of old people have that weird, bad neck posture thing going, like Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders has that low neck thing where his neck is just jutted out like an old man. And Derek Brunson is not an old man, but he has that. He has that weird neck, almost what they call in physical therapy, like as far as dysfunctions go, kyphosis, where you have this upper back neck bend. And so that's his posture. That's just how his neck is going to be. Then he's fucked. Vanderlei Silva has that too a little bit too. Not as bad as Derek Brunson, but a little bit. That's why it always looks like he's leading with his chin, but that's just how his neck is shaped. One of the problems I see with Derek Brunson is that even in fights where it looks like he's winning or he has won, it's always in this wild, erratic fashion. And it's hard for guys to game plan against that. If a guy starts swinging wildly and charging at you, yeah, there's technical things you could do to avoid it. But if you get caught, you get caught. A lot of times your training partners aren't doing that for fear of hurting you. So it's hard to mimic that at full power in sparring. But Brunson's been able to get away with it when he wins. But when that doesn't work, you kind of see the result. It doesn't look like he's aware of what the other person is setting up, what his feints mean, what this means, what that means. He just thinks, I should go now. I should do this right now. Instead of doing it based off of the information he's getting. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that I really like about Israel is that especially with the striking, he can adjust based on what you're giving him. 
So much like AI that learns your movements and patterns, he's going to base his counterattacks based on what you give him. So if you're not doing anything, he can go on an offensive blitz and try to hurt you. But if you're moving in a certain way, he'll set things up. And he did it, especially during his kickboxing days, where he would set up a pattern and you notice you would drop your hand after a counter. Then he was like, all right, I'm just going to throw a kick. I think he's blessed in a lot of the same ways John Jones is blessed, where he has a lot of reach on people. So he doesn't have to rely a lot on defense because he keeps you at the end of his punches. So his opponents are never within reach to hit him. So he never had to develop good defenses. But I wonder what will happen when he fights somebody that can really get in on him like DC did against Stipe. Will he be able to adjust? Does he have hidden defensive head movement and boxing that we don't know about? Maybe. I just haven't seen that yet. I just need to see more to get on the hype train. I wonder if the UFC will sacrifice one of their legends in trying to build up Israel and match them up in the future. Rounding out the rest of the card, you had Jason Knight versus Jordan Rinaldi. Rinaldi dropped down from 155 to 145, then he just looked amazing. He looked strong, fast, and especially against Jason Knight, who's really good on the ground, you got to see how good Rinaldi is on the ground. And also, I think Jason Knight is one of those guys who fell in love with the rubber guard. And now, I don't know, it's 20 years post-rubber guard. It's, it doesn't surprise people the same way it used to. It just has become another kind of guard that fighters use. So he doesn't need to eliminate it, but he needs to do other kind of stuff on the ground besides just rubber guard. He needs to learn how to get up. He needs to learn to threaten some other ways because he's been losing a lot of fights where he gets taken down and he gets controlled. And against Rinaldi, not only did he get controlled, but he was getting worked and getting his back taken over and over again. It just looked like jiu-jitsu from early 2000s versus modern nogi jiu-jitsu that mixes up a lot of dynamic movement, passing, and wrestling. And then you had Sejara Eubanks versus Roxanne Mataferi. Sejara won again. They fought before. Both times, Sejara has won by unanimous decision. So it played out very much like their first fight in the Tough House, where Eubanks was just stronger and hit harder and was better on the ground. But the bigger issue is Eubanks missed weight again, and this has been several times now that she's missed weight. And this was a fight in the newly minted women's 125-pound division. And Eubanks was poised to be one of the heavy hitters in that division, but I don't know if she can make this division. What do you think about her weight cut issues? Do you think her frame is too big for 125? Because I think at 135, she wouldn't be that small either. I think she has a much better shot at making weight in the correct fashion at 135. She's made 125 before, especially in the tough house when you have to fight consecutively. But I don't know if it's a discipline thing or if it's just as she gets older and has more time to build muscle that it gets harder and harder to cut down. But she would definitely benefit from moving up to 135. Yeah, why kill yourself? I think she'll be fine at 135. She's a black belt. She has decent striking. She has decent wrestling. She's strong. She hits hard. I think she has a better shot at a title fight at 135 than 125. Simply because if she even got a title fight, which she was supposed to, I don't think she'll make weight. 
I think in her mind, she matches up better with Valentina Shevchenko than she does Amanda Nunez. I wonder if she knows something we don't. Like maybe she's already sparred some of the people at 135 and she didn't like how that felt because her MMA record is still very new. She doesn't have that many fights. So it's not like she had a lot of bad experiences at 135. So maybe, yeah, maybe she's gone with some of the ladies in 135 and she didn't like how that went and sparring. And so she's like, okay, I want to go to 125. But I think she's still of that old mindset that she wants to be the biggest person in a division. But now I think it's better just to come in fresh, hydrated, and with a lot of energy. Yeah, I mean, look at Daniel Cormier. Look at Robert Whitaker. Look at Kelvin Gastelum. Because Eubanks is so slow at 125. And I think some of that is because of the weight cut. Yeah, let's say you had an eight-week camp, but six weeks of it is spent trying to cut down. How much skill are you actually adding and refining as opposed to making sure that you get paid by making weight? So for this fight, I know she worked with UFC PI, Performance Institute, and they gave her a nutritionist to work with. So that tells me, even under the right circumstances where she's got her discipline down, her motivation to make weight is up, and she still can't make weight. Maybe it's just a sign that even if the stars are aligned, you can't make weight, then maybe this isn't the right weight division for you. Because if you keep trying to force yourself into a division that you can't make, you're going to do severe damage to your internal health. Other than that, the only two fights that stuck out was Lyman Good versus Ben Saunders, which ended very early in the first round by knockout. Only because Ben Saunders is a veteran, been fighting forever. He was in one of the early Ultimate Fighters. But he's getting easier and easier to knock out. And I'm sure Lyman is a heavy puncher, but Saunders just can't take the punches like he used to. And then he got knocked out. Well, good for Lyman Good, though. I remember he won the inaugural Beltor welterweight tournament as champion. He hasn't been able to replicate that success, but at the very least, he got a win at UFC 230. So if you've been watching the UFC for a while, you're seeing a lot of up-and-coming fighters, a lot of prospects like we talked about, Carl Robertson, Israel Adesanya. But you're also seeing a lot of veterans just aging before our eyes. So every event, you see one old-timer where you're just like, man, I don't know how many more fights he has in him. And more and more, as a lot of these veterans are fighting out the last fights of their contract, maybe you see more than one fighter age before your eyes per event. Maybe you see two or three. And Saunders was just another guy where you saw that he was in the twilight of his career. He's just not as durable as he used to be. And even early in his career, he wasn't a durable fighter to begin with. He's just one of those guys where the majority of his losses come from KOs. And that's not good. And then lastly, the fight that stuck out was Matt Frivola versus Lando Venata, which ended in a draw. And it just stuck out because Lando was... One of those guys was also getting a lot of hype from the UFC for being an exciting fighter. He did a lot of unorthodox moves like Israel Adesanya, like Sugar Sean O'Malley, like Conor McGregor. Like Zabit Magomed Sharapov. But now he's fighting on the early prelims of the UFC, on Fight Pass, because he never lived up to that hype. I don't know if he was just overhyped to begin with. He does a lot of good stuff. He has good timing. 
He hits hard, but I don't know. He just doesn't put it together well enough to win rounds and win fights. What do you think's the problem with Lando? Because he trains with a great team. He trains with Greg Jackson and Mike Winklejohn and Brandon Gibson. But also, he's homegrown. He's come up his whole ranks from amateur to pro at Jackson Wink. So everybody was expecting this guy to be the truth. And even the Jackson Wink coaches were saying, this is a future champion. So what do you think happened to Lando? Was it too much too fast? He was overhyped. He was never that good. In a weird way, he reminds me of James Irvin, the Sandman. Back in the day, he was known as a terror in the gym. And everyone claimed that he gives everyone hell. He was never able to quite put it together during the bright lights of an actual pro career. Lando has flashes of brilliance where he hurts the guys, especially in his UFC debut against Tony Ferguson. But I don't know if he focuses too much on entertaining the fans as opposed to piecing together a strategy where it looks like some semblance of a game plan. Because you're like, this is working, I'm just going to keep doing it. And then it works until it doesn't. But also he was a guy where he was all offense, but he didn't have much in the way of tactics. So strategy would be what you came into the fight with. Like overall, this is what I'm going to do against the guy. Tactics would be the things you're doing in the fight that builds up to the strategy. So meaning like feints, James Irvin and Lando, all offense, but they don't do a lot of feints. That's why Lando ends up throwing a lot of strikes, but not that many land because he doesn't set it up. He doesn't trick you. He doesn't have you move the way you need to move for him to hit you. And also Lando, he's very mobile. He does a lot of crazy athletic ambidextrous stuff, but he's not a good defensive fighter. So he's easy to hit. And he also doesn't employ good tactics. I don't think it's a low fight IQ thing. I think he's just really dialed in on some of the components of MMA striking and just MMA period, but not all of them. Like fainting, like the tactics, like the defense, like incorporating MMA wrestling where you're incorporating your takedowns into the strikes. Other than that, UFC 230, fun event. But we didn't get a good post-fight interview from Derek Lewis, which is actually funny because usually for title fights, they give the loser time on the mic also. What the fuck happened? Somebody at the UFC post-production team got fired. (laughs) For not interviewing Black Beast? Because, okay, there's only one thing you have to do is interview the winner and interview the loser. You messed up 50% of that equation. Why'd you take your pants off? 